Hi, I'm Jackie, and we're in a series called Power, Vulnerability, and Leadership. And today, we're going to listen in on a conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. I know, I know. Is there anything more to be said about her? Well, in fact, there is. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Before we dig into this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, I want to put her into some historical context, cultural context, if you will. I need to remind us that, again, there are only 14,000 words spoken by women in the scripture. Approximately 1.2% of the words in scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, and Apocrypha, are spoken by women. They tend to have been spoken by unconventional women. And that tells us that this recording of this conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, it's a rarity. We should take note. Historical context, well, she lives in Samaria, and that's the northern part of Israel. Israel had split into two entities, if you will, kind of like the north and the south did during the Civil War here in America, similar to that. You had the north and the south. The North intermarried with different ethnicities and races, and they protested having to go to the South, to Jerusalem, to worship at the temple, like the law said. And in fact, they resisted so much, they decided to build their own temple up in the North. And that's why the South didn't like them. They called them half-breeds. There was lots of dislike and divisiveness and disdain between the two people groups. This is her context, and we have to understand it to really get the depths of what Jesus is doing here. Also, she's a woman, so we have cultural context. And as you've already learned, women in antiquity had low status, lacked power and position. Remember the three things that gave women worth in antiquity, right? The three things that give her position and status? It was marriage, having a baby boy, and bringing honor to your husband's name. In this woman's time in history, it was thought that women were weak-minded and fickle and unreliable. And maybe that's why they weren't allowed to study the Torah. I mean, a famous Jewish rabbi wrote one time, rather should the words of the Torah be burned than entrusted to a woman. Whoever teaches his daughter the Torah is like one who teaches her obscenity. Yeah. Women were considered less than, of low status, Jewish men prayed every day, Blessed are you, king of the universe, for not having made me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. See, knowing this, her historical and cultural context, just makes what Jesus does in this passage, like, so profound and so worthy of our worship. Jesus shouldn't be there. 
Most of the people, Jewish people from the South, they would never have traveled through the North, even if it was the shortest way. They would have went around Samaria. He doesn't. He goes in. He shouldn't be speaking to her, not only because he's from the South, but also because he's a rabbi, and he shouldn't be talking to her, especially about the Torah. But he does. Instead of coming to the well in the morning, like all the other women in her day, the text tells us that the Samaritan woman came alone in the afternoon, and right away the author is trying to tell us something. He's trying to signify that something is off. Jesus is at the well. His disciples aren't there. They've gone off to get him something to eat, and she approaches, and he asks her for some water. And we read in John chapter 4, verse 9, The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Did you catch her tone? This isn't some gentle, meek woman. She's snarky. A woman in our online Bible study, which, by the way, if you want to go deeper into the subject of power, vulnerability, and leadership through these women's stories, you can go to the marcellaproject.com and register for the online study. There you're going to get a study guide that gives you scriptures and questions, recordings of the teachings, and some of the conversations that we are already having. One woman in the study said she... Um, This woman, the woman at the well, reminds her of women she works with that are coming out of the sex industry. There's this toughness to her. She's had to survive. And I think that's really a great image that we should hold into our head when we think about this woman. She says, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, when I hear that, what I realize is she's expecting him to slight her. Because, but he doesn't, and she's shocked. Right? She's expecting him to slight her. Can you think of a time when you expected someone to do something to you like that? Maybe because they were of a higher position, had more authority. Can you think of a time when you expected someone to slight you? Do you have that? Yeah, that's where she's at. And back, Adam, she comes. You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? And then she asks him, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock? She just threw down a challenge. Are you greater than my father Jacob? Now, why does the author put that little detail in there? This little detail about whose well it is, Jacob's well. Because he knew. He knew it to be important to the original audience. They would know the history of this place. That's why John mentioned it. He's making them think back to the history of this well, and there's lots of it. Remember way back in Genesis, God called Abraham to leave his country and head out. Well, it's here he pitches his tent and offers a sacrifice in response to God's promises, promises of a blessing of a kid and the land. It's here where Joseph is sold into slavery and where he's brought home 400 years later to be buried. And his tomb is still there. I saw it when I visited Israel. And then there's the story in Genesis 34, 1 through 2. It's the story where Jacob's daughter, Dinah, is raped. And if you scroll down in Genesis 34 to verse 5, you'd learn that after she was raped, 
Jacob, her father, didn't do a damn thing about it. He did nothing. And you can bet her story's been told and retold and told again at this well. And here's this woman at the well. And I think she comes and she's somewhat resigned to herself, to the fact that this life she has, well, it's as good as it gets for her, particularly for women like her. But what Jesus is going to show us is this is not what God intended for her, for her, for you, for me, for any woman. Something new is happening at this well. And Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water, verse 13, and you will never thirst again. Now, living water in, in the scriptures is this idea of, of water that's flowing from a spring. It's, it's fresh. It's continuous. It's essential for life, especially for those living in a desert. Whatever she's getting at Jacob's well, what he's saying is, I have something more to offer you. Now, she is thinking literal water, and he's speaking metaphorically. And how do I know that? Because just four chapters later, in John 7, 37 through 39, he tells us that the living water that Jesus is referring to is about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And if you knew anything about the Holy Spirit, right, Acts chapter 2 and beyond, you know that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us as individuals and as a collective people to live like Jesus intended for all of us to live, you know, in the beginning. Paul calls us the new creation through the power and transformation of the Holy Spirit. So right away, Jesus is saying something is different. Something new is happening, and it's better than what came before. Jesus hinted to all of this in his first miracle. His first miracle actually happened in John chapter 2. It's the water turning into wine at the wedding of Cana, and that always struck me as a really weird first miracle. I mean, it sits between these two powerful chapters, these two powerful theological discourses, if you will. Like in John 1, it says, in the beginning, the word already existed, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God, and God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. Whew. <laughs> John is heavy stuff, heavy theolog theological stuff. I have never understood why we, we tell new Christians, you know, like, and they come to us and they say, well, where should I start reading in the Bible? And we send them to John. Like, John wrote Revelation, people. Maybe we should take them to Luke or Mark for crying out loud. So we have this lofty idea in John chapter 1, right, that Jesus is the word from the beginning, and then we have this heady conversation, a discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus about being reborn again. And then in the middle of those two heavy theological discourses, we have a wedding at Canaan where water is turned into wine, like 700 bottles of wine. After they'd been celebrating all day, days, and there's more wine. No one ever preaches on that, by the way. Water to wine. I, I could not understand why would this be the first miracle? Why, why did he do this? I mean, of all the things, why this? And so I had to dig deeper. 
And there's symbolism in this. And by the way, well, when you get it, you'll get that this is the perfect first miracle. Because in the Old Testament, wine is associated with joy. And the prophet Joel said that in the future messianic kingdom, when the kingdom of God began on earth, and here it is, quote, unquote, from Joel 2.24 and 3.18, the vats will overflow with new wine. In John chapter 2, it started. Something new was at hand. And what was that? The kingdom of God on earth had begun. And the kingdom of God on earth is good news for women. Verse 15, she says, please, sir, give me this water, and then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get more water. I was thinking about how desperate she sounds. Whatever is making her come to the well alone in the afternoon, it is a walk of shame. Brene Brown is an expert on vulnerability and shame. I know you've all heard of her by now. If not, go to TED Talk, listen to her vulnerability TED Talk. It's off the charts. She gives this definition about shame. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. It's the fear that something we've done or failed to do, an ideal that we've not lived up to or a goal that we've not accomplished, makes us unworthy of connection. I'm not worthy or good enough for love, belonging, or connection. I'm unlovable. I don't belong. Yeah, she's doing a walk of shame. And in verses 16 through 19, we learn why. Jesus says to her, okay, so go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he replies, I know you don't. You don't have a husband. Uh, In fact, you've had, you don't have a husband for you now, but then you've had five. And the one you're living with, he's not your husband. Now, often the way this passage has been taught is that Jesus is pointing out her sin, that she has been sexually immoral. And he's pointing out her sin so that he can forgive her for her sin and restore her. I... I just don't think that's what's happening here in the text. I don't think so because of an understanding of the culture at that time. At that time, most often women were not allowed to divorce their husbands. Only a man could divorce his wife. So if that's true, and that's what we tend to know historically, culturally, is that only men could divorce their wives, well, then we'd have to look at her and say, she's been divorced five times, abandoned, rejected, left, totally unsecure in her future. Women at that time, they married. And if they didn't marry, well, then they were begging on the streets or became prostitutes. Alas, maybe why she chose to live with another. Maybe it was shameful, but at least she could eat. So let's talk about shame. When do we tend to feel shame? How does shame show up in our culture? Because we're not an honor-shamed culture. You know, we're not based on that, but we do have shame show up in our culture. What does that look like? How does shame show up in our churches? How does it happen, and to whom, and why? Well, we, we might experience shame because of our gender, or our race, ethnicity, family of origin, 
our socioeconomic status, education, or lack of. Sometimes it's shame brought on us because of what another has done to us, like being divorced or abused. Dan Allender makes a helpful clarification in his book, The Wounded Heart. He explains that we feel legitimate shame, I'll use the word guilt, when we do something wrong and we feel conviction or guilt. Illegitimate shame is when we feel, is what we feel when someone steals our dignity, leaving us feeling ashamed. Another fascinating thing I read, not so sure who said it, because at this point, you know, I'm in my 50s and pretty much nothing I say is originally mine. I'm pretty sure it's built on everybody else's thoughts and put together and it's all meshed together today. So I, anymore, I can't really tell what's, what's original, what's not, but it's somebody's. And this is what it said about shame. Shame wants to keep you static from creation. And then it goes on to ask these questions. What acts of creation would you endeavor to take if shame were not a part of the conversation? What risks would you take? What relationships would you engage in if shame were not a part of it? This person goes on to also say, what conversations should we have that we aren't having because of shame, because it feels too shameful? So think about that. What conversations weren't had in your family because of shame? And how did that impact you? I was in a conference on shame, actually, where this psychiatrist was talking about how shame impacts the brain. And he was talking about how when we were kids, our parents taught us what to pay attention to, our brains to pay attention to, and what not to pay attention to. Certain things that they wanted us to not record, to avoid, to ignore that it was happening. As many of you know by now, I grew up in an abusive home. But interestingly enough, we were never asked to ignore it. In fact, we got to talk about it. We got to fight about it. And I realize now as an older adult, that was really abnormal. But I truly believe our not being shamed into hiding what was happening in our family was a saving grace. So let me ask it again. What conversations weren't had when you were growing up because of shame? And maybe another question we should ask ourselves is what conversations aren't we having with our loved ones because there's shame involved? See, I think Jesus sees this woman has been ravaged by sin and it's taken a toll on her and she's settled with it as if this is as good as it gets for me. And when I see Jesus speaking to her, I hear him saying things like, I see you. I see what happened to you. I see the injustice that was done to you, the death toll it's taken upon you. I am not okay with that. I can restore you. I can breathe life back into you. See, I think that's why he's pointing it out to her. I think that's what he's saying to her, and I think that's what he's saying to us too. Well, the woman at the well turns to him and says, well, you you must be a prophet. And then she moves into this amazing theological discourse. She even debates Jesus. Here she is with that snarkiness. Like, okay, so go ahead, religious dude. Um, Let me ask you this question. Do I have to go to Jerusalem to the temple to worship, or can I go right up here to the temple that my ancestors built? 
That's verses 19 through 20. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And then there's this whole conversation about where to worship. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It's not about that anymore. It's not about this temple or that temple, which, by the way, is very interesting that this is the conversation she brings up. Because two chapters earlier, in John chapter 2, we read about Jesus having a run-in with the religious leaders about his clearing out the temple. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they were like, look, this took us 46 years to build. What do you think you can rebuild it in three days? And Jesus said, yeah. Because when Jesus was talking about that temple, he actually meant his own body. And Jesus says to her in verse 21, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter where, whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. The Samaritans know very little about the one you worship. Well, we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. If you heard our previous podcast on Tamar, we spoke about this idea of agency and voice. And this woman, who's had very little to say over what's happened to her in her life, who isn't allowed to debate, consider, or think, or learn the Torah, is being invited by Jesus to act, to make choices, to think freely. He's giving her agency. He's giving her voice. So let me ask you this question. Who is a person that's given you agency? Who's given you voice? Have you ever experienced Jesus giving that to you? You know, agency, voice. See, this is why I keep saying Jesus is good news for women. Something new has begun, and it starts to blow her mind. She starts to have what I call cognitive dissonance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, I, uh, you know what? When the Messiah comes, he's going to explain it all to us. Like, mind-blowing stuff is happening to her. And, and I get this. Because when the Lord challenged me to reconsider my view of women in the church, what women could and couldn't do, specific roles, I, I, I came to a point where I thought, well, women are only allowed to do certain things. And then I broke my back. And I spent my summer reading tons and tons of books on women in the church, church history, all the problematic passages. And what I discovered was there were all these theological um, theologians, evangelical theologians, scholars who held the scriptures you know, in high authority. And they studied these same passages and yet lit, landed with different interpretations of how it played out in real life. And I remember as I was being introduced to some of these scholarly, conservative, evangelical theologians that landed differently than the seminary in which I graduated, I felt really uncomfortable, even scared. I mean, what if I'm being led astray? What if I change my view and lose friends and I'm no longer respected by my peers? What if my husband doesn't agree with where I finding my, find myself moving? Ever felt like that? It's really scary to have our theology challenged. And that's exactly where the woman at, well, at the well is at. He is challenging her religious assumptions, her theological teaching, her cultural, social understanding. And she goes, yeah, 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 when the Messiah comes, he's going to explain all this to me. 
And then Jesus does something profound in verse 26. I've read this passage, this passage of the woman of the well, so many times, and I've missed this very profound part. He proclaims for the first time that he is the great I am. Verse 26, he says, I am. I am he. I am. Right? In the Old Testament is where God instructed Moses to tell the Israelites that I am has sent you, Exodus 3, 14. Remember, it's at the burning bush. He goes, and, and God says, hey, I, I need you to go back to Egypt and tell the most powerful man on earth that you're going to take all of their workforce away. And Moses is like, dude, those Israelites, they don't really like me. Remember, they're the reason I'm out here in the desert to begin with. I mean, okay, so if I go, who do I tell them is sending me? And God gave his name. I am. Now, that's fascinating because here Jesus, John 1 tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. John 1 tells us that Jesus is God's communication to the world. And the first time he tells anyone that he is indeed the same I am, the same God of the, uh, that met Moses at the burning bush, the same God that took the Israelites out of Egypt and brought them into freedom, the first, that same God, the first time he ever identifies himself that way, he does it to a woman. Yeah. In a culture where women had low status, position, and power. Jesus elevates women. We see that again in John chapter 12, this first-time thing, right? It's a, it's a woman, Mary, who anoints Jesus' feet. She's the first to get that something's going to be dead, that, that something about his death is coming. She's the first. And who is the first to see the resurrection? Mary Magdalene, John chapter 20. Yeah, Jesus elevates in places where actually women have been kept to low status, power, and position. He elevates. Jesus is really good news for us women. Okay, so back to it. She's, he is challenging this woman at the well, her, her assumptions, her theological teaching, cultural, social understanding, all of it. And then this challenge, this mind-blowing thing happens, not only to her, but the disciples. Because they come back and they see him talking to her, and they're stymied. The text says they don't have the guts to ask, but they're wondering, what on earth is he doing talking to her? And then she, by the way, goes back to the village and tells everyone. And they come towards Jesus and the disciples. Can you see it? Now picture the scene. They have just asked, what is he doing talking to her? She leaves this half-breed that they have disdain for, and she comes back with more of them. And you know they've got to be thinking, oh, no, oh, no, you've got to be kidding. More? It's interesting because a lot of times I've heard this passage taught as, as an evangelistic um, passage. Like, hey, see, we got to go evangelize. The harvest is ripe, you know. But we miss the point that actually the disciples are not running into the village to tell them about Jesus. It's actually the villagers coming to Jesus. And then they invite Jesus to stay with him, and he does for two days. <laughs> now what are the disciples doing? I mean, picture this. For two days, talk about cognitive dissonant, mind-altering confusion. What are we doing with these people? Yeah, you can bet the eyes are rolling for sure. 
It reminds me of what Paul said in Galatians 3.28. He says, there are, there are no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Jesus Christ. And whenever I've heard that passage, I've tried to picture those people groups sitting around a dinner table together. I mean, what must that have been like? The Jew and the Gentile, the slave and the free, male and female. I kind of picture the slave owner saying to the slave, hey, could you uh, go get me some seconds? And the slave's looking over, and I'm like, nah, I may be a slave out there, but here, I'm one of you. We're family. Imagine what it took for these people groups to deconstruct what they thought, their bias and prejudice about each other, and, and how to meld into one, as Jesus says. It would take time, don't you think? Recently, I've been reading this book on the history of marriage. I'm I'm hoping I can do a podcast with the author because this is a profound book. But the author makes the argument that what we consider in America to be traditional marriage, this idea of marrying someone you love that's a soulmate, that that's actually not been the traditional marriage. That for almost four to 5,000 years, the traditional marriage, the one that's been the tradition, for thousands and thousands of years, is where a man and woman get married for economic and political endeavor. But I digress. This isn't really about marriage yet. We'll get there. The point I want to make is that she says that we start to see a shift from those thousands of years of what we would call a traditional marriage based on economics and politics. We see about 150 years ago a shift that starts moving us toward this idea that what we have in the Western culture today is based on love. And it starts during the Enlightenment with John Locke and Rousseau and their thoughts on individual choice and all of that 150-some years ago. It set the stage for change. But that change didn't happen overnight. Ideas started taking hold in this village and in that village and then with these people, and then those people. And then slowly, over hundreds of years, it took hold, and it became normative, right? When I think about that, it makes me think about the suffrage movement, the civil rights movement. I learned somewhere, don't know where at this point, but it takes about 300 years for a sea change to happen. Yeah, about 300 years. So how does that make you feel? to know that it takes that long for a shift in prejudice and bias and oppression and leaving particular people groups out, shaming particular people groups, that it takes a long time, like 300 years, for all of that to change. One woman woman in our Bible study said it made her tired. (laughs) I get that. For me, overall, I mean, at times I get tired. Alas, why I need to lament. But overall, I actually find it helpful and even hopeful because I can look at where we are in the movement, right? Well, we might be 150 years in. We might be 200 years in. Okay, well, this is where I am at this time in this big, huge sea shift that's happening. It's going to take a long time. I may be dead before it actually gets there, but I'm part of the cog in the wheel of getting it there, right? So, so for me, I find it a little bit helpful. Let me close this up. I want you to remember 1.2% of the words in scripture that we have are spoken by women. And I want you to think about how small of a percentage that is 
And then think about all that Jesus is doing in this conversation with the woman at the well. I mean, he's bringing up race and gender and systems that keep others down and shamed, agency, voice, who's excluded. He's healing those who've been ruptured by sin. All of this in that conversation. I think in this passage, Jesus teaches us how to love, how to heal, definitely how to see people, all kinds of people, and specifically how to see women. Jesus is really good news for us women. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.